As we prepare to hear the scripture readings this morning, the first comes out of the prophet Micah, and it talks about this little tiny town down there south of Jerusalem, and it's a nothing place, and yet there's one small bright light from that town that happened way early in the Old Testament, and it signifies the fact that if Bethlehem could be chosen, then maybe others might be as well. And then from the Gospel, we hear this story of Matthew. And it prepares us for what's to come. And right after that is the story of the wise men who come. And just want you to hear about the journey taken in all of these things and where there is fulfillment. See if we can find those places as Karen reads this morning. But you, O Bethlehem of Hephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up to the time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be one of the ones, and he shall be the one of peace. If the Assyrians come into our land and tread upon our soil, we will raise against them seven shepherds and eight installed as rulers. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks, Jesus. As you can, would you please raise for the reading of the gospel? Now, the birth of the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to date Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of God. It's always amazing how the events of the world change what we do in worship. And maybe in this case they certainly should. As we begin, I just want to stop for a minute and just again say it's hard for us not to believe that particularly the events in Newton, Connecticut tell us that we live in a challenging time. 
And friends, we live in a challenging time. It is a time that is not dissimilar in some ways to the world into which Jesus was born. Jesus came as a light in the darkness. That's what the prophets he said. And chose to live in this time, respond to this time by being a light, by being a place, by being that person no matter who stepped in front of him that he would heal. No matter what the circumstance or events were that he would take those on and saw his role so significantly as one to bring peace into the midst of the violence. And we need to see our role in the same way. And you're going to hear some of that this morning as we talk about the Gospel of Matthew. To get there, I want to just remind us of where we came from the Gospel of Luke. And that the point of Luke was to say that, you know what, everyone is welcome to become chosen, one of the chosen of God. Everyone has the potential to live in that way, to be chosen in that way, to be a part of this greater kingdom, if you will. Even if you're an aging priest who goes in and is surprised by an angel sitting on the altar of incense, or an aging priest's wife who suddenly becomes pregnant at an age where it was completely miraculous that this happened, but she too was chosen. Or if you're a young girl, chosen of God out of absolute obscurity, chosen of God to bear God's child, And maybe the most important in Luke's gospel was even if you're a shepherd, disrespected, unloved, terrible career, the least of the last and the lost. And it was to the shepherds that the angels came first to talk of this birth so that there might be a much greater understanding that this child was coming literally for everyone. Then we turn to Matthew. And Matthew's Gospel, and just a reminder that what we do so often every Christmas is we try and combine these two stories. When in fact they were never intended to be combined. The wise men were never designed to be in the manger scene because they didn't visit Jesus at the manger. And, and the shepherds were never to be at the house where the wise men came. These two stories are, are dealing with completely different audiences and are written for completely different purposes. And it's not necessarily a bad thing that we try and combine them, but I think in that combination we lose the meaning of both. So today I want to focus in on Matthew. And again, as I said, Matthew is about power and about fulfillment. It's an amazing story, and it begins and focuses much more on Joseph. And so we have this lineage at the very beginning of Matthew. Remember, Luke took the lineage back to all the way to Adam, where what Matthew does is he takes the lineage back to Abraham, the beginning of the faith, because, again, this is about the fulfillment of the prophecies of old, focused in the Jewish tradition. But this is going to shift dramatically as we look at what happens in this story. And it really begins with this surprise. And we often miss the surprise of this gospel because it focuses in much less on Mary and much more on Joseph. That what Joseph does in the initial stages of this story is he breaks the law. 
absolutely, without question, breaks the law. He is not married to this young girl. He's betrothed. And it's a significant contractual relationship between these two families. But he is betrothed, not married, when she becomes pregnant. And the law was very clear. And it's very organic. And I apologize how organic it is, but we need to know how organic this was. That, that once Mary is found to be pregnant, she is to be dragged out to the gates of the city, taken outside of the gates, because when she is stoned to death, killed by the elders by throwing stones at her, her blood doesn't defile the sacred ground of Jerusalem. That's the law. What's Joseph's response to that? Ain't happening. And so what he does is he systematically protects her, and he protects her at two very distinctive levels. First of all, he protects her dignity. That she is a child of God, even in the midst of whatever caused this pregnancy. She is still a child of God, and I will protect her out of the love that I have for her. And I will also protect her life. And look at what happens then later on in Matthew as we look at the, the life of Jesus. And what does Jesus do at every juncture but the same thing? Look at as he stood there in the temple and even in the synagogue and healed people on the Sabbath. Why? Because that was the need. Or as he walked through the fields and picked the grains on the Sabbath because they were hungry. And what did he say? <laughs> what did he say? The Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. And live this out. I love it. The, the, the law was meant, according to Joseph, and then we see it in Jesus, meant to protect, not harm. Meant to build up, not tear down. To fulfill rather than rob. And Joseph becomes the initial purveyor of this new image of the law and the significant purpose of that law that was designed by God and yet was so completely dismantled and changed over time. And so right at the beginning of this gospel and this birth narrative, we have this dramatic shift that often gets overlooked. And it is the shift that Jesus lived out throughout his life. The power shifts right here, and it begins with Joseph. Then we meet these powerful astrologers. Not Jewish, not Christian, not from Jerusalem, not from Galilee, but from where? The East. Why the East? Well, even in that time, the East always represented great and deeper wisdom. Always represented the deeper wisdom. And so we have these stargazers who have spent their lives waiting, hoping, listening, wanting, watching for the sign that something in the world was going to shift. Then this birth happens. And what they do is they follow the light. Represented in this story by a star. And we have these images like this of and by the way, how many wise men were there? We don't know. That's your test for today. <sighs> we don't know. 
we know that there were three gifts. But every depiction like this one has three wise men. But what we know is they also carried power with them. They carried the power economically to be able to make a journey like this. They carried the power economically to bring what were very expensive gifts to this child. But their power moved beyond the economic. Their power was also deeply spiritual. This journey they made from the east, and by the way, I could care less where they came from. That's not the point of the story. The story is what they did. And the fact that they made this journey, no matter where it was from, so that they could come to this child that wasn't even of the same faith as them because they recognized in this child a different kind of power that would potentially transform the world. And they made the journey. That spiritual power of watching so intently as to recognize when this event would happen. And they probably didn't begin traveling until the baby was born. And if you'll notice in the gospel, they don't come to Jesus at the manger. That's not what it says. They find Jesus at a house. And most would say because they were in Bethlehem that this innkeeper where there hadn't been room before invited them into their home. And that's where the wise men came. They saw the child. The child. Not the baby. The child in the home. But what the wise men do is they also introduce us to the villain of this story who represents a completely different kind of power. We meet in this story King Herod. And at this point, if I were to tell a story and we made it into a melodrama, this is where everyone would boo and hiss. King Herod was this king that was supposed to be the ultimate high priest, overseeing and protecting and bringing the best aspects of the law to his people, his chosen people. But instead, the power that King Herod possesses is one that just tears him up because equally powerful, he is equally insane. What is it about that kind of power that drives people insane? And instead of protecting although he does protect, no matter what it takes, he would protect his own power. Even at the cost, and it's hard to say this today, even at the cost of the children of that region. Power. But we're not done. Because Matthew brings us two other pieces of power. He brings us the empire power. The empire of Rome and the empire of Egypt. And as Joseph, being the holy man that he is, realizes that his new child is in danger, he is warned in a dream and he heads to Egypt. One of those powers. Power. But one other element about this trip to Egypt. Mike Matthew, in his whole idea of fulfillment, bring and elevate Jesus as the new Moses. Because Jesus comes and probably follows a similar route back home, which would be Nazareth in the north, as Moses followed with his people. The difference is, they didn't get lost. 
They didn't spend any time in the wilderness. Jesus' role was to bring people out of the wilderness. A voice of one crying in the wilderness of life. I will come and show you a different way. It's powerful. Powerful imagery. Powerful understandings of the different kinds of power. Powerful in its fulfillment. I love this story partly because it's just so organic. It deals with real life on so many levels. I mean, don't we all struggle with different kinds of power in our own lives? Don't we hold on to whatever power we can find so tightly that we don't want anything else to come in and take it away from us? Don't we struggle with the kind of power that robs families of young children? That's what happened in Newton, Connecticut last week. Don't we struggle with the kinds of darkness that we saw wandering through the mall just outside of Portland? Don't we struggle with those kinds of darkness and those that live in that kind of darkness? But I want to remind us again that the world into which Jesus was born was even more violent, darker than anything that we have experienced. And we see that, if no other place, in the story of Herod's response to this baby who was to be king of the Jews, born. And Herod goes after the children. So what do we do in the midst of times like this? What do we do and how do we carry those children at that school? How do we carry that principal who put her life on the line to try and save the children for which she was responsible? Or the school psychologists that no doubt try to talk him out of this. How do we hold and carry these things in our own hearts? Our bishop came out with a letter last week after the events, and I loved what Grant said, and I, I will desperately try and get through this. We need to understand that those are our children. They're not separated from us. These are our children that were there in that elementary school. These were our children and their parents. These are Their parents are our sisters and our brothers, no matter who they are or where they come from. And by the way, I hate to tell you this, but there is darkness all around us. All around us. And our role as a church and as individuals in the church is to bring light to that darkness, to bring hope to the hopelessness, to bring encouragement to those who don't find any. And I will tell you that the belief that I have in God is a God who was there that day. There that day, in that school that day. Comforting, surrounding. There that day in the head of that young man, 20 years old, saying, please don't. Was there that day with the panicked parents trying to uplift them and encourage them? Was there that day and is there today as this is the first Sunday after the events and will be there on that Christmas morning and that Christmas Eve to try and bring hope and love 
to those families. Why didn't God stop it? Is the biggest question that we all ask. Because that's not what God does. Ours is to respond to that darkness as God's representatives, as God was there. We must be there in these times. We must. I closed for a service with this thought. The other place that I find hope is I, as I've talked about heaven with you before, I have this image of heaven, even Friday evening, of a group of new, very young children sitting at the feet of Jesus. And a principal and a teacher and a mother all there sitting at the feet of Jesus as Jesus is comforting them and being there for them. The visual image that I have after the events were how packed every church was in Newton, Connecticut. And so packed that they couldn't all be in the facility that they were crowded around outside as well. Why? Because everybody wants to find some explanation, some hope in the midst of the light bulb burning out in the midst of the darkness. And that's what happened. And that's what it felt like. Lights were snuffed out. And they sang, are you ready? They sang Christmas carols as they remembered the lives of these children. They somehow found hope in the midst of that. So let me close with this thought. As I said before, friends, there is darkness all around us. There are dark places, believe it or not, in Bellevue, and Issaquah, and Renton, and Seattle. There are those around us who are struggling deeply with life. <coughs> and our job, number one, is to bring light into that darkness. And whether that's feeding hungry people or whether that's offering hope to the youth who are living on the streets of Seattle or whether that's our neighbor for whom this is a very difficult time or whether it's others in this church for whom Christmas is very hard because of that empty, empty place at the table. Ours is to bring light. And I've said to my class over and over and over again over these last 10 weeks we can't do this alone nor should we ever we can't live this life alone there is a power so much greater than any of us that seeks to work through our lives in ways that helps us bring and be light to the darkness but what it means is we have to open our hearts, open our souls, open our lives to this power. And sometimes that power is in the voice of the person sitting beside you right now. That you are the light even for that person. Or it comes through that beautiful, wonderful, 
small voice of Isaac right now. Light in the darkness, hope, even joy in this season. So who is it that you know? Who is it that needs you to be that light? Where is it that you need to go to be that voice of transformation? How is it that we will carry each other through even times like this? Finally, how's your journey to Bethlehem going? Are you following? Are you hoping? Do you want to see and experience that child? That child sure wants you to experience. Will you pray with me? God of light, God of hope, on Sundays like this, it's hard to be seated here. In times like this, we need this story more than ever. Help this continue to be a journey of faith for each one of us. Help us to be wise humanity, sensing the star and following it to the one who can help us understand as represented as by these candles on this altar and these three Advent candles. Help us be illuminated. Guide us as your people. All this in Christ's name.